Good afternoon and welcome to Madison Bookbeat. My name is Shally Pittman. My guest today is Rebecca Webster. She's an enrolled citizen of the Oneida Nation and an assistant professor of American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota Duluth. For more than a dozen years, Rebecca Webster served as an attorney for the Oneida Nation at a time when the nation was defending itself against threats to its land and its sovereignty. Her experience working on those lawsuits, combined with the history of the Oneida over centuries and the changing policy on tribal land rights, is the subject of one of her new books, published this month from the University of Wisconsin Press. The book is called In Defense of Sovereignty, Protecting the Oneida Nation's Inherent Right to Self-Determination. It draws together Webster's rich professional and personal history on this subject, combined with the expertise of several contributors. It is my great honor to welcome Rebecca Webster to the airwaves. Welcome to Madison Bookbee. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So your book is curated by you and several others. It outlines at times the history of the Oneida over the past two centuries, as well as its culture to modern day lawsuits over Oneida land. At the heart of the book is a battle over land. Talk about the importance of land to culture and the continuation of the Oneida. Wow, that's a really big question. So our land base, it's um, it's vital to who we are as a people. It provides a home for us to be here. It represents our new homeland here in Wisconsin, whereas um, originally we were from New York. Um, so what we have here in Wisconsin, this is it. It's a 65,400 acre reservation. And for here until the foreseeable future, that's where our people will call home. The book also covers some of the history of the Oneida Nation up until modern day. And it, it spends some time talking about the status and the movements of the Oneida. How did the Oneida come to Wisconsin? Oh, there's a whole variety of reasons why we had um, been removed to Wisconsin. A lot of it was after the Revolutionary War. The Oneidas and the Tuscaroras uh, sided with um, the colonists and the other folks in the Confederacy sided with the British. So there were some tensions there. During that war, there was a lot of destruction of our homes, our orchards, our just our territories in general. Even though we tried to regroup after the Revolutionary War, there was still a lot of influence from, you know, alcoholism. And um, we had lost millions of acres of land in illegal treaties with the state of New York. So we found ourselves in a position of being nearly landless, uh, suffering from the influence of alcoholism, and getting wrapped up into these politics of, you know, uh, land speculators. And we ended up following a Christian missionary to a new Iroquois utopia, which was going to be um, what would later become the state of Wisconsin. The rest of the Confederacy was supposed to come, but um, the Oneidas are the only ones from the Haudenosaunee Confederacy that ended up being removed to Wisconsin through our removal treaty in 1838. Um, the Brotherton and the Stockbridge from that area also did come with us. So the three of us came to Wisconsin in the early 1800s. And can you talk a little bit more about how... Um... I don't know if the proper term is placed, but how you were placed right near the Menominee? We had sent in the early 1800s, even before we were moved scouts, to come to what would later become Wisconsin, Oneida Scouts, to, to check it out, to talk with the Menominee and the Ho-Chunk and work out a deal as to where we would want to end up settling. 
and the Oneida people, we chose the area which would later become essentially Green Bay. And that is where we had decided that where we would like to settle. And so we worked out agreements with the Menominee and the Ho-Chunk where we would come here and share this land with them and we they would they would allow us to live with them. And then it kind of got misconstrued over time about the Oneidas purchasing land. Um, there was an exchange of money, um, but it wasn't quite the same as you would think of land transactions today. But in any event, the United States didn't really recognize those agreements and those relationships because this was during a time and it you see echoes of it now where they didn't really recognize um, indigenous people's ability to negotiate for their own land rights. So there was this whole discovery and uh, conquest idea that the United States came here and they're letting the indigenous people live on this land, recognizing their Aboriginal uh, title, but we really don't own the land. So when the United States got involved, they had entered into a treaty with the Menominee. Menominee ceded lots of land so that the New York Indians would be able to come and settle here. Um, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head for that part of it, but the Menominee ceded a lot of land. And what ended up happening is then the United States turned around and entered into treaties with the Stockbridge and the Oneida to have us have a, a pieces of that ceded territory, which were minuscule compared to how much land that they had ceded. So in short, none of the agreements that the Oneida um, worked out with, with the Menominee and the Ho-Chunk were recognized by the feds. Only the treaties that they had entered into were recognized, which resulted in the loss of millions of acres of land for um, the Menominee and ended up with just a very small territory for the Oneida and then later for the Stockbridge. Thank you for that explanation. And I ask about the history of how the Oneida came to be in Wisconsin, because as you said, you used the phrase uh, echoes of that we see today. And because this book is so much about land, uh, it's pretty much all about land, right? You kind of take the position, and so do your contributors, that to understand conflicts over land or, or sovereignty over land now, um, you need to understand the history going back several hundred years. And that is a lot to absorb um, unless you're in it. So I appreciate that explanation. Well, let's talk about land now. In recent decades, the Oneida Nation has faced lawsuits from the village of Hobart, located near to uh, Green Bay. And these lawsuits are over seemingly banal things like local stormwater drainage permits to special events permits for for the Oneida's Big Apple Festival. Um, but these lawsuits are actually incredibly important. And this book draws from your experience working on fighting those lawsuits or bringing those lawsuits. Can you talk about your time spent as an attorney and kind of lay out in broad strokes why the Oneida Nation needs to be in court so often? Yeah, it really boils down to control. Um, so you have two legitimate governments co-located on the Oneida Reservation in this, this part of the reservation. So just backing up a little bit, there are a number of governments that are located on the reservation. We have the city of Green Bay, uh, part of it overlaps. We have the village of Ashwaubenon, Pittsfield, and the town of Oneida, as well as Brown County and Allegheny County. So we have all of these governments 
um, vying for control over this space. And in most cases, the Oneida Nation is able to work cooperatively with all of these other governments to provide the best services that these governments can to their respective and overlapping constituents. The problem is with the village of Hobart, they don't see, they didn't see this as an opportunity to cooperate. Rather, they saw it as we are an obstacle for them. So they tried to repeatedly relegate us to the position of a common landowner who needs to follow municipal ordinances. So it, if you're starting from that perspective that the Oneida Nation just needs to follow Hobart's laws, you're going to end up with a lot of conflicts. And that's essentially what is echoed throughout this whole book is Hobart is trying to get Oneida to follow Hobart's laws, which in majority of cases, as you'll see in the book, doesn't make any sense and the courts don't agree. Well, let's return to land in a second. But this is a literary show, and I do want to talk about the actual format of the book. Um, it's short, but it's dense. Like, this still took me, you know, if this, the, the average reading time of someone reading a book several hundred pages longer, because it is so dense in a good way, it has so much rich history. Um, but it's compiled with chapters from yourself and also chapters written by five or six other experts, historians to other Oneida lawyers. One is by Arlinda Locklear, the first Native American yeah. woman to argue a case before the United States Supreme Court, which I didn't know. And occasionally it also feels like a bit of a memoir because of your personal history being involved in litigation, but also, you know, just being an enrolled member and, and your your family going back generations. Can you talk about how this book came together and, and how you worked with contributors and, and yeah, how, the, how this book came to be? Yeah, so I had, um, one of my biggest frustrations was while I was an attorney is that it felt like Hobart was doing a really good job educating the public about their position of things. And I think the Oneida Nation didn't do as good of a job to get the message out about our position and the reasons why we do things. We did things every now and then sporadically, but it wasn't nearly as consistent as the village was. Um, for example, they had their a very small, they had one person entirely dedicated to tribal affairs. The Oneida Nation had you know, a few thousand employees and nobody was dedicated to that particular position. I mean, we had um, intergovernmental relations and such, but it wasn't, you know, concentrated to the extent that this was. So um, I really wanted to try to find a way to help people comprehensively understand, because like you mentioned, this is dense, right? It's really hard to convey these things in sound bites. There is so much backstory that you need to understand to fully understand or to fully grasp what's happening here. So I wanted to get the message out to people and in a way that they could share and talk and really absorb this. And I knew also that I wouldn't be able to do that myself. So what I did is I ended up gathering uh, the people that were on the litigation team while I was an attorney for Oneida. So we have two of our historians. We have a, a retired chief of staff who was key in leading a lot of the intergovernmental agreements that we ended up entering into with folks, but also was key in a lot of this litigation as well. And then two of my mentors, Jim Bidorf and Arlinda Locklear, who had been with all of these cases. Um, and then after I had left to become a, a, a professor at the University of Minnesota Duluth, had to continue this fight. 
So that was the Big Apple Fest case that um, had just been resolved. So I asked them if they would write a chapter on that. So all of these people coming together is really just a reunification of the litigation team that I that was, I really enjoyed these folks' company and their expertise. And I wanted to pull them in so that their voices could be heard so they could explain it from their perspective about um, how to best inform people of this whole entire situation as well as the history. And you mentioned that this is intended to educate people about the Oneida point of view um, and to give this context because it is really complicated. Um, And I just have to talk about the format, too. I mean, um, each chapter have even like key terms in this chapter. So I'm looking at chapter five, dispatching the police. And it says key terms in this chapter, tribal sovereign immunity, intergovernmental agreement, home rule. Other chapters have things like allotment and fee patents, all concepts that I don't think too many folks are educated to because, again, um, this stems all the way back to decisions made centuries ago. So um, also as part of this book, I mean, it's personal, given your professional history, you worked as an attorney on these cases, but it's also deeply personal in a different way. In one affidavit, you outline your ancestry back something like eight generations while you're arguing and writing about the the connection between the Oneida people and their land base. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah, so I um, I think it's starting on page 91. I just flipped to it. Um, yeah, this was an affidavit that I wrote as part of chronologically the first case that came out. Um, and, and coincidentally, this case emerged the year I graduated law school and came home to Oneida. So this was like, welcome home. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, my family history, this this one in particular pulls out one one line of many in our in our families, right? Back to when the Oneida people still lived in New York. And it goes through that family line and pulls out the different things that I personally was unaware of at the time of writing this affidavit. And it gave me an opportunity to go back and talk to my family about this because I I didn't know. And it was really heartbreaking and exciting at the same time to find out that I had people in my family line that were also fighting for our land rights. So we have people who... Um, who wrote letters to the federal government um, trying to challenge the things that were going on without the Oneida Nation's consent. Um, uh, And just to know that I come from a line of people who really wanted to care for and protect not only our reservation land, but the rights to the Oneida people to be able to use the land as we see fit. And you excerpt about a two pages of your affidavit. I'm wondering if you might want to read part of that. Totally cool if not, um, but read part of that starting on page 91. Yeah, so one of them is, um, it talks about my um, great, 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 great grandfather, Cornelius Stockstater. He was the one that was born in New York um, and was part of the Pagan Party uh, coming here to Wisconsin. Um, So that's just a distinction of the different groups of people that migrated or were removed from New York to Wisconsin. Um, Two of Cornelius Stockstater's sons 
Paul Dockstader and my maternal great-great-great-grandfather, Henry Duke Dockstader, were vocal critics of the patenting of allotted reservation lands. They feared that the loss of tribal land base would create beggars of tribal members. Henry Duke Dockstader was born in 1853 on the reservation and lived on the reservation for his entire life. He received an allotment of 89.85 acres. He died in 1944 and is buried at the Oneida United Methodist Church on the reservation. So then it goes on to different, you know, his, his children and children after that, all the way up until, you know, me. And including her husband as well. Um, and it's fascinating to read this, um, kind of tracing one's lineage, but also the way that federal policy has intertwined with one's lineage. There is a phrase you mentioned or a word that you mentioned that our listeners might not be familiar with. It's called allotment. And um, there's at least one chapter and then woven throughout the rest of the book um, is a policy called allotment, which drives where we are today, even um, even though that was kind of reversed. Um, a lot of this stems from the Dawes I might say this wrong, the Dawes Severalty Act of 1887, which broke up reservations and tribal lands. And that was through a policy called allotment, which decimated the land and, and some of the culture of the Oneida, but also um, other tribal nations as well. Can you answer for us, what is allotment? Yeah, sure. So this is a strategic federal policy that was aimed at assimilating indigenous people into mainstream society. So the idea was that you would take, um, so the Oneidas, we had a reservation uh, are in the 1838 treaty comprising of 65,400 acres. So that's our reservation. That's what the Oneida nation held communally together, meaning individual people didn't own it. It was the, the tribe that held it together. And that's previously how we occupied our territories. We, we, lived there together and we enjoyed the land together and governed ourselves accordingly. Well, the General Allotment Act said, well, we don't really like the way you do things. Um, we want you to melt away into society and, and be done with the Indian problem. And part of that is to divide up the land on the reservation and give ownership of smaller parcels on the reservation to individual tribal members. Now, in some cases throughout the United States, there were there was more land than there was people. So they got a large chunk of land. Tribal members received a large chunk of land and whatever was left was surplus and was sold. Um, in Oneida here on the reservation, we didn't have any surplus and our allotments were about 40 acres apiece. Well, another strategy there is that they were scattered throughout the reservation. So a single family might have reservations in all different areas. And the idea there is that the land would be held by that individual for a period of 25 years in trust, meaning it wasn't subject to taxes, you couldn't sell it. This was kind of a getting used to it period before it fully became just like everybody else, how they owned land. Well, that wasn't happening fast enough and they passed the Burke Act, which provided a process where you could receive your fee title right away, meaning it lost its trust status. And as an individual, you could now sell it, you could it, it became subject to taxes. So within a single generation, through this process of 
convert the land from tribal ownership to individual ownership to individual fee land, we lost about 90 to 95% of the land on the reservation in a single generation. So that was extremely devastating for the Oneida people. And you write that after this policy of allotment, which was later, um, I don't know if reversed or rescinded or what the right word is, but um, that the Oneida Nation has a long history of trying to reacquire that land that it lost and place it back into trust status, which is a really complex task, it turns out. Can you talk about what happened after allotment and how that has changed? And then I want to ask you about what it takes to get land back into trust status. Yeah, sure. So in the 1920s, um, there was a report that came out called the Miriam Report. And what that did is it evaluated the um, effectiveness of the General Allotment Act. And that report said a lot of things. Um, two of the most important things that it said was that, yes, the Allotment Act succeeded in transferring ownership of tribal land into non-tribal hands. Um, so it, it did. It turned over a lot of tribal land. But it did not help Native Americans melt away into mainstream society because you had Native American people, indigenous folks, still on their reservations, more poor and desolate than ever. So if you really want to help this, you know, this Indian problem, how to fix this, the answer is to restore management of tribal affairs to tribal governments themselves, because they are the ones that are going to be able to address the problems of their own people. So in response, Congress passed um, the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934, and that did a lot of different things. It was pretty controversial um, at the time, as, as is all of this, right? But what ended up happening is it provided a mechanism for tribes to work with the federal government to reacquire land on their reservations and have that land taken into trust status, meaning back to its original status as treaty land where it would not be subject to taxes um, and then it would be a whole lot more clear about whether or not the local governments can try to regulate it. Even though we argued and lots of other places recognize that once the tribal government owns land, it is no longer subject to municipal authority. So looking at today, looking at the Oneida Reservation today, you include a couple of maps in the book. Um, there's a mixture of land ownership throughout the Oneida Reservation, and it's described in the book as a checkerboard. And if you look at the map, it really does look like a checkerboard. Um, there are small pieces that are owned and, and pieces that are also private landowners and municipalities and whatever. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about the importance of getting land, reacquiring land, getting it back into trust status, and, and the current process, how difficult and complex it is to acquire land and then, it get, and then get it placed back into trust status with the federal government? Well, when we purchase the land, we, we dedicate a, a good chunk of money every year. The United uh, Tribal Government sets aside money for um, the tribe to reacquire land. And when we look at what land to purchase, there's all kinds of considerations. Um, 
one of them being that is the land title free and clear of issues because once we buy the land and we try to have it taken into trust status what's really happening is the united states is taking title to that land so the title would look like uh, the united states of america in trust for the oneida nation and they're not going to take title to land that has defects and they're very particular about making sure that we um, address any of the concerns that the local governments have. Um, and it, it's a long process that they, there can't be any environmental issues on there. Um, they're very concerned with underground storage tanks, um, easements, um, who is possessing the land. It, it is a very thorough and lengthy process to have land restored back to that trust status. Do you think that's kind of screwed up? that it is so difficult to get land placed back into trust status. And I mean, it, it's it's Oneida land. So even if there are defects, well, they're, they would be your defects to deal with. So can you talk about that? Yes. Um, and that's really frustrating. That was one of the hard lessons that we had learned from the very first case about condemnation when the village of Hobart tried to condemn land that we had purchased on the open market on our reservation. Um, it was uh, vacant land that the village of Hobart wanted to turn into an industrial park. That didn't fit our vision for that part of the reservation, so we purchased it. They still wanted to put the road in, and we said, why would you want to put a road in? We're not going to develop this as an industrial park. And they said, well, we have the authority to do that, so we're going to do that. And we ended up in court, and the judge eventually said, in short, if you want to protect that land, you have to put it into trust status, which was really devastating because here we are, we're a, a federally recognized tribal government operating on our only piece of homeland left here in Wisconsin. And we're trying to buy back our land so we can decide how to move forward from those horrible effects of the General Allotment Act. And now he's telling us we gotta, we gotta go ahead and transfer ownership to somebody else. We understood the tax benefits of not having to have the land in fee status anymore. But that was a bit frustrating to know that the truest protection of that land could only come if we no longer owned it. It, it was a really difficult situation to be in. And there are other tribes in the United States who won't have their land taken into trust for these very same reasons. I think it's, there's no right answer. It's, this is the current situation. If we really want to be able to protect our land under the way the laws are right now, we have to have that land put into trust. I don't like it. I don't think it's right. But here we are. Thank you for that honest answer. So we're turning now to modern day history. And you brought up the village of Hobart, which, of course, is kind of part of the thesis of this this book. But OK, in total, how many separate issues has the village of Hobart sued the Oneida Nation over or tried to to determine what is done with the land? So we have six cases that are in the book, if my count is right. I just had to go back and look at it. So these are the lawsuits that um, are featured in the book that talk about these very issues, um, asserting the village trying to assert control over the Oneida Nation. And so these lawsuits have to do with things that can seem banal, but they're really not, um, because it, it's ultimately who has the authority to make a decision over land. So we're talking things, though, like 
stormwater permits. And um, I'm really interested in the special event permit in the case of, it's not just the Apple Fest. What is it called? Uh, the Big Apple Fest? Yeah. Yep. The Big Apple Fest case. Okay. Well, let's um, let's talk about the Big Apple Fest. Can you lay out what the village of Hobart claimed and, and what the nation claimed? Sure. So that case is um, where an annual event that the United Nations hosted to celebrate um, our relationship with orchards and apples in particular. So at, in the fall, we would have um, a, an event that was located mostly on this trust land. And um, it was actually, I think, most of it in the city of Green Bay. But part of the orchard itself is located in the village of Hobart. It, it was a festive. We would have vendors there. We would have food there. We had some performances. There. It was a, an event that was free and open to the public and just a real celebration of, of, of culture and of the harvest. And the village of Hobart said, yeah, that's a lot of people that you're having gathered there. We want you to get a permit from us so that we can make sure that, you know, everything is safe and everything is, you know, kosher. We said, wait a minute, we don't need a permit from you. We're actually working with the county for the law enforcement. And besides, we have an Oneida police department for public safety. We don't need to get any permits from you. We're, we're doing just fine. And that's the issue that ended up in the court. So in a lot of these cases, the village um, really fell back on some arguments that the Oneida reservation was disestablished. We don't have a reservation anymore. I think the argument is they have a few of them, like our 1838 treaty. There's language in there in setting up how much land that the Oneida would have. It said a boundary shall be drawn where um, and I'm going to get this language a little bit mixed up, but about 100 acres per person is what it said. So there were 654 of us at the time. So the surveyor drew a map, 65,400 acres, more or less. And they said, well, that was a disestablishment right there. And that, that's really not how that works. No court has ever bought that. But they also said, you know, the General Allotment Act disestablished the reservation. Well, courts have said no, that that didn't, that's not how that works. Then they were saying that before 1934, the Oneida Nation was not a federally recognized tribe. And that that's just really not true either. So those were some of the things that they were really banking their argument on to try to delegitimize the Oneida Nation's government. And um, they did not succeed because Oneida came back and said, we have, we have a reservation, we're a legitimate government, and we're federally recognized. And in the Big Apple Fest case, they ultimately recognized and sided with the United Nation that, in fact, we are a legitimate government, we do have a reservation, and we are federally recognized. So that's pretty much the way it's gone in each of these cases, right? The village of Hobart eventually loses out because it's, their argument stems from a lack of understanding that the United Nation is a, a recognized sovereign government, right? Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to give them the credit to say that they don't understand. It's that they are part of a national movement to try to change federal Indian policy in favor of state and local governments to the detriment of tribal governments. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because throughout the book, um, particularly in the last couple of chapters, um, the, name, the name Elaine Willman comes up. 
Now, Elaine Willman is a uh, former chair of a group called the Citizens for Equal Rights Alliance, a group I had never heard of. Um, And if you Google that and hate group, um, the two seem a little intertwined. Um, The Citizens for Equal Rights Alliance mission is to, quote, change federal Indian policies that threaten or restrict the individual rights of all citizens living on or near Indian reservations. Um, It also calls tribal sovereignty a myth. And Elaine Willman was um, involved, I forget exactly what role, with the village of Hobart in developing um, their arguments and claims. Um, Can you talk a little bit about this person, but more broadly about this kind of anti-American Indian, um, these groups? Yeah, so um, I have a little bit of personal backstory to start with. Um, So the village of Hobart invited her to come um, to speak, I think they were talking about, um, I'm, I'm trying to remember now, it just slipped my mind, but I think it was about the census or something. Um, what she ended up coming to talk about was the, like the Native Hawaiian Act and just, it was a real anti-tribal presentation that she gave to the village of Hobart citizens who wanted to attend. Of course, not only was I in the area, but I, at the time was a resident of the village of Hobart. I lived on that part of the reservation. So I attended the, the town hall meeting where she presented. And it was really bizarre because you had this woman saying, uh, talking about things very anti-tribal, like tribes should be uh, abolished and and there shouldn't be any tribes anymore. And how tribes are uh, these terrible um, uh, entities that suppress rights of not only their own tribal members, but everybody around them. And it was very strange because she had claimed to be Cherokee. And she said things to the lines of, I'm so native that when I paint portraits, I'll, I'll be painting in the sky and I'll step back and oh my gosh, there, there's the face of a chief in the sky. That's how native I am. It was really a bizarre presentation. And then at the end of it, when it came time for questions and answers, Bill Gulnick, who is one of the authors of, of the chapters here, he um, is a, a veteran, a, a educated man, a Harvard educated man who has done some phenomenal things for not only our community, but um, the local universities. He's just a very well-respected community member. He got up and he said, you know, you you have a lot of inaccurate statements here and just kind of told her the things that she said that weren't accurate and that he was wrong. And he said, and the fact that you hold yourself out as a Native American woman offends me. And he sat down. And then she said, oh, thank you for your comments. I appreciate it. And I am so flattered that you consider me a Native American woman. At that moment in time, I knew we were in trouble because here we have a person that is um, so willing to distort just not only history, but what just happened in front of our very own eyes. And it was it was really troubling. Wow. Um, That sounds like a lot to process in general. Uh, so how was she, how was Elaine Willman involved uh, with the village of Hobart? Um, she, she would later become hired as the tribal affairs coordinator for the village of Hobart, as well as the economic development coordinator. I might be having those titles a little mixed up, but that's generally her role. And was she involved in the, the litigation while holding those titles? I believe so. She's not an attorney, but um, in her role at in that public office that she she did 
um, participate and communicate with the village residents about the lawsuits. So I was I was looking her up because that's a name I had never heard before. Um, and I found um, an article in High Country News, um, and I'll just give you their thesis, which is anti-American Indian groups have re- received little to no public scrutiny compared to their anti-Black and anti-Latino counterparts. And I'm wondering if you can talk more broadly just about the role of anti-American Indian groups who kind of doubt tribal sovereignty or um, American Indian nations and governments? Yeah, so um, in general, I think the way that they skirt around this is saying that they are trying to protect the rights of individual tribal members because tribal governments are so oppressive. And because of that, I think they get away with essentially being a hate group by under the guise of saying they're not actually a hate group because they care about Native American people. So it's a a really fine line that they walk and that they end up getting away with it because they're attacking a government, which is a political entity and not individual people. And then you have on the other side of that too, that Native Americans, that it's a political identity, it's not a racial category, so to speak. So they are walking the political line and avoiding those racial um, issues that might get them in trouble. Um, let's talk more about the, the village of Hobart. Um, I mean, the book kind of ends by calling again for a kind of a mutual understanding and a greater cooperation between the village of Hobart and the Oneida Nation. Are you aware of the status of things now? Are there pending fights or litigation that could come in 2023 or the next couple of years? So I'm no longer an attorney for Oneida, but I do currently hold the position as the chairman of the land commission. Um, And in that position, we don't really hear a whole lot about the intergovernmental agreements and and such until they're finalized or until they're pretty close. But um, even though I still do hold out hope that maybe leadership change or maybe they will see that they're the way to the courts is not a way where anybody actually wins. I'm still holding out hope, but I don't I don't think anything is on the horizon yet. I just want to also briefly mention that there are other governments involved working together when you need to work together. This is Brown County, right? Yeah, the village of Hobart is in Brown County. Right. And then there are other uh, nearby municipalities that have worked successfully with the Oneida Nation. Yeah, there's actually a chapter that talks about police dispatch, a 911 dispatch. Um, So we had the Oneida Nation had an intergovernmental agreement with Brown County that talked about, you know, not only cross deputizing our officers, but also there is a, a small piece of land or a series of parcels of land that we affectionately refer to as downtown Oneida, which is, you know, that's where our police department is located. We have, you know, um, a lot of tribal businesses, our library, our civic center, all of that stuff is in the heart of, of the reservation. And um, something had ended up switching over where when Hobart had a few police officers that if somebody picked up the phone that and dialed 911, Hobart would be dispatched first. Well, we said, not only do we have like four times the amount of police officers as Hobart, 
but this is our downtown Oneida where they're either all tribal members or they're all tribal businesses or it's the actual police station. So we want an area where if someone picked up the phone and called 911 that the county would dispatch the Oneida Police Department. And we had an agreement and they said, yes, that sounds like a great idea. And Hobart said, oh no, wait a minute, we wanna decide who gets called or who gets dispatched when somebody calls 911 and they filed a lawsuit to, to try to invalidate that agreement and try to force Brown County to call them first. And the court ultimately recognized that the county gets to decide and it, it really does make most sense in that area if the Oneida Police Department is dispatched if somebody calls 911. I'm speaking with attorney and author Rebecca Webster, an enrolled member of the Oneida Nation and assistant professor of American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota Duluth. We're talking about our new book, In Defense of Sovereignty. It's a history of the Oneida Nation and a window into their struggles to preserve uh, the sovereignty of their land. Rebecca Webster, you you write that this book is meant to be a primer, and we touched on that a little bit before. But you, you talk about how maybe it's also a corrective to other coverage of these land disputes. And there's just a hint, uh, a couple lines about the role of media in perpetuating a lack of understanding about tribal rights. And so I'm a journalist, and so I'm really curious if you have advice for journalists to cover issues about tribal sovereignty fairly. Yeah, I think primarily it would be to go to the source, go to the tribe, ask who would be a good person to talk to in the tribal government structure. Because if you want to find out about tribal sovereignty, the place to do that is not by asking municipal governments. Well, that's pretty straightforward. (laughs) You would think. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I had uh, promised we were talking a little bit before recording, and I had promised that I would ask you about some of your other books, which uh, we have to look forward to this year. Um, I did not know that you were releasing several books all in the same year, all close to each other. But this is just one of the books that you have been working on. And this has uh, collaborators and contributors, but uh, you have more that are uh, more focused on you. Tell us about what else you're working on. So I had another book that was released last summer, and that's called um, The Tribal Administration Handbook, A Guide for Native Nations in the United States. So part of the reason that I had left the practice of law and into academia was to try to find other ways to support tribal governments by empowering the employees and the elected officials with the full breadth of you know tribal governance and tribal sovereignty so that they can you know, build capacity within their governments so that they aren't as vulnerable to these attacks and that so they can fully realize all of the benefits of being a sovereign government and deliver the best services that they can to their their individual um, communities. But there really isn't any guidebook out there. Uh, We had even joked that there isn't even a bad handbook out there for that. So um, no matter where we started, it would be a good start. And we got together. We uh, built off of the development of our program at the University of Minnesota Duluth. Uh, We have a graduate program called the Masters of Tribal Administration and Governance. And in developing that program, we had talked to different tribes in uh, Minnesota and and some in Wisconsin about what are some of the things that you want people to know about. And we ended up developing a program around those, um, those areas. 
I also did a literature review to find out what is out there that helps people understand tribal governance. And we did a survey of scholars and practitioners. What are the areas you think are the most important? And out of that, we developed the table of contents. And then we began the hunt to try to find people to write these. Um, and then we pulled all of that together and we released this tribal administration handbook. And actually, if you're a tribal administrator working for your tribal government, you can receive a free electronic copy of the handbook that was part of our negotiation with the press to make sure that this is as accessible and helpful for individuals working for tribal governments as possible. And was that also the University of Wisconsin Press? No, this one was Michigan State University oh, Press. got it, right. And you also have another book forthcoming. What can we look forward to in the near future? Yes, that one is um, a little bit of an escape from all of this, um, the negativity that surrounds uh, um, these lawsuits. And even sometimes the way we govern ourselves isn't the way we had traditionally governed ourselves. So this is kind of a response, I guess, in my own way to respond to what's going on within our communities. So this book is also by Michigan State University Press. It will be released May 1st, and it's called Our Precious Corn, Yungwa Nasti. And it um, captures corn itself as our relative, our sister, and looks at how she has remained by our side all the way from the creation story um, and traveled with us through time, through our you know, tragic history, um, through allotment, through removal, through boarding schools, and has remained there to help us find our way back. And it even goes through up until today and how we're having resurgence of our relationships, reestablishing our relationships, picking back up those things that our ancestors had to lay down just to survive throughout all of that traumatic history. And we are now in a position to be able to celebrate our culture, our identity, our history, our language, all of that in, in a really positive light. And it also looks to the future. What, what is the future going to hold for, for our people? And in writing that book, it, it was really fun. And I, I just had a great time healing from a lot of what was happening, what I was reading about, what I had to process. And I had interviewed over 50 of our community members here in Oneida about their relationship with corn. And so their voices are speckled throughout the book, along with the voices of, you know, the early explorers, military expeditions, anthropologists. Um, and, and actually, there's a collection of stories called the WPA stories. It's the Works Progress Administration. It was um, through the New Deal where communities received funding. And in our community, there was a professor from um, University of Wisconsin who was able to pay Oneida people to gather stories from other Oneida people um, in, in the language um, and translate it to get our stories, um, a little bit of our culture, a little bit about our daily lives. There's jokes in there. There's all kinds of things that was a snapshot into the late 1930s and early 1940s. I was able to look at that as a source, too, to really understand um, our relationship with corn. Wow, that sounds like fantastic reading, and I am really looking forward to reading that in May. We will have to have you back here on Madison Bookbeat.
yeah, that's a, it's a whole lot less negative, even <laughs> though there's that traumatic path. It's about healing. So I think at that point is when I, when I really can appreciate it. And it would be really great if in a few years we talk about, you know, this in defense of sovereignty, if there's a way for the United Nation and Hobart to end up forming positive working relationships, I would love to write about that again, because that would be about healing. And that's where I hope we're headed. Well, it's been wonderful to speak with you. Um, I had one more question for you um, as a service for our listeners. You know, every time every time I read a book about a Native American nation, I find myself learning so much. For folks who want to learn more about the Oneida Nation beyond what's detailed in your book, where do you recommend that they start? So there is a, a community member who actually ended up unfortunately passing away at the beginning of COVID um, named Gordy McLester. And I think it's his legal name is L. Gordon McLester. And he edited a number of books about the Oneida Nation in Wisconsin. And anything um, that he wrote or he helped edit would be a really fantastic source for, for people to check out. Fantastic. Thank you for that recommendation. I've been speaking with attorney and author Rebecca Webster, an enrolled member of the United Nation and assistant professor of American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota Duluth. We've been talking about our new book, In Defense of Sovereignty. It's a history of the United Nation and a window into their struggles to preserve their land and culture. It's out this month from the University of Wisconsin Press. Rebecca Webster, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your new book. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Madison Bookbeat. I'm your host, Shali Pittman. Thanks to Andrew Thomas for running the soundboard today. You're listening to community radio station WORT Madison. Keep it tuned here. Coming up next is Three Hours of Jazz with Alex Wilding-White.